Welcome to The Social Science of War, a podcast for land warfare scholars and practitioners. My name is Kyle Atwell. I'm an Army officer and assistant professor in the Social Sciences Department at West Point. And in today's conversation, I'm joined by three guests to discuss the topic of civil-military relations. Today's conversation starts with a discussion on Samuel Huntington's concept of objective control, a model of civil-military relations broadly taught in U.S. professional military education, which my guests have multiple critiques of. We continue to explore topics such as partisanship in the military, what role service members should play in public discourse, and how to establish oversight over a military which is widely regarded as one of the most trusted institutions in American society. My first guest is Dan Helmer. He is a delegate in the Virginia House of Delegates, an Army Lieutenant Colonel with tours in Iraq, Afghanistan, and South Korea, and an instructor in the Department of Social Sciences at West Point. Major Mike Robinson is an active duty U.S. Army officer with service in Iraq, Afghanistan, and the Balkans. He is a recent assistant professor in the Social Sciences Department at West Point, and today's conversation is motivated by his book based on his PhD research at Stanford University titled Dangerous Instrument, Political Polarization and U.S. Civil-Military Relations. Dr. Corey Shockey is the Director of Foreign and Defense Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. She has served in the State Department, Defense Department, and on the National Security Council, authored five books, and held multiple academic positions, to include as the Distinguished Chair of International Security Studies in the Social Sciences Department here at West Point. The Social Science of War podcast is brought to you by the Department of Social Sciences at West Point. Our goal is to bring together experienced soldiers and scholars to better understand land warfare, the Army, and national security strategy. We hope you enjoy today's conversation with Dan, Mike, and Corey. Delegate Dan Helmer, Major Mike Robinson, and Dr. Corey Shockey, welcome to the Social Science of War podcast. I'm really looking forward to today's conversation with such an exceptional panel. Thanks for having us on, Kyle. Thanks, Kyle. It's going to be fun. So today's conversation is focused on politicization within the military and civil-military relations more broadly. I'd like to start by motivating the topic, particularly since politicization, civil-military relations can be a difficult topic to discuss within the military. I'll start with Mike, whose recently published book on civil-military relations is the motivator for today's conversation. Why is the discussion on politicization within the military relevant to military professionals and security studies scholars today? Well, I think it's a great place to begin on this subject because I think as we'll discuss today that when it comes to civil military norms and implications for democracy, we can no longer assume that a majority of the American public or even national security practitioners understand or embrace the importance of those values. So it may not come as a surprise for those who are closely engaged with the subject of civil military relations or democracy. But for many, it bears repeating that a military institution outside the churn of partisan politics, an objective and capable profession, is a critical pillar in a liberal democracy. One of the sort of er puzzles in the academic study of this subject uh, regards the fact that free societies have the difficult task of ensuring an effective martial force in the military that also remains committed to essential frameworks of civilian control. And this principal agent problem, what Peter Fever refers to as the civil military problematique, is the key source of tension. So it bears mentioning the social science piece of this, which is early scholars in civil military relations theorize different architectures for how best to accomplish this. And the most highly referenced is 
Sam Huntington's concept of objective control, his 1957 book, The Soldier in the State. God, I hate that book. <laughs> well, as out of touch as it may actually be in practice, the idea believed that a clear division of labor was how to achieve this, that essentially the military and the civilian worlds ministering to the execution and development of strategy, respectively, would ensure a stable ecosystem. But many scholars, including Risa Brooks at Marquette University, have shown, you know, this concept is woefully out of touch with the nature of civil military relations in practice, and can even paradoxically be used to justify partisan political activity by military leaders. So what most contemporary civil military scholars do find consensus on is the need for an environment that both acknowledges and bolsters norms regarding the preservation of a nonpartisan military. And we often hear this arrangement referred to as the apolitical norm. But perhaps it's more appropriate to call it the nonpartisan norm. And the difference is not just semantic. One need not have to reread their Clausewitz to understand that all military activities are, in essence, political. But a nonpartisan military is not only important for the preservation of civilian control, regardless of party or interest, but in the maintenance of a credible military voice, both to political leaders and to the mass public. So a military perceived to be compromised or captured by partisan interests will certainly suffer when it comes to public trust the ability to advise leaders credibly, the capacity to recruit and fight effectively. And when we talk about politicization, we're talking about one of the chief obstacles to those desired qualities of the military. You know, Kyle, when I think about politicization of the military, I appreciate Mike's sharing the academic framework and the need for a nonpartisan military, which is important. But increasingly, I think the threat that we face and the reason this has become a become a large topic now is over the last several years, the increase of extreme right-wing militant activity and the crossover between militia activity, anti-democratic with a little d activity, and a nexus of veterans, folks who served. And if we look at the attacks, for instance, that happened on the Capitol on January 6th, there were many veterans and many of the symbols of the military engaged in that. And so I think one of the chief concerns as we think about how do we separate the military from politics and what happens in a partisan environment in which increasingly we see the normalization of particularly virulent right-wing extremism that hasn't had a home in the military traditionally, that hasn't had a home in democracy traditionally. I think that's posing new threats to our understanding of the civil military order. And uh, has posed new challenges to military leaders. So I think it's why it's a real topic of discussion today, even beyond the general conversation about what is an appropriate level of partisan activity by those who serve in the military, what is an appropriate role for those who've served in uniform or who still serve in uniform and the reserve or anything like that in partisan politics. Like I think those have generally been in what's the proper role of oversight. I think we have this new challenge of threats to our democracy writ large from within our democracy? And what is the role of the military and those who serve in the military in combating those threats, as well as making sure that those who are challenges to our democracy, what's the roles in which they, they themselves serve? So I think that's a big part of the conversation, why this is a particularly timely topic. I'd like to ask Corey to expand a little bit more on the concept of objective control by Samuel Huntington. And the reason is, is because one, we can frame what scholarship, you know, says about civil military relations, which I think is relevant to a podcast titled Social Science of War. But also my feeling is that objective control in United States military, professional military education is kind of the standard of what is taught. And so understanding why there's tension with this concept and what the concept is would probably be relevant for military practitioners to frame the broader conversation. 
Sure. So Huntington's notion is that both the military and civilian sectors should be independent from each other and only touching at the very top level. And as the work of Sir Lawrence Friedman shows, and as Michael said, Clausewitz himself talks about this, that is the path to bad strategy. Military leaders can't give decent military advice if they don't understand the political constraints that policymakers are operating under. And that doesn't happen with one person touching one other person at the very top. You actually have to have a sense and a feel for political judgments. I really like the point about the difference between nonpartisan and apolitical. And my favorite illustration of this comes from Elmo Zumwalt, who was the chief of naval operations during the Vietnam War. And he promoted the first female admiral in the Navy. And when he put her rank on her epaulets, he leaned forward and kissed her on the cheek. And he writes that he got more hate mail about that than any other decision he made as the chief of naval operations. By the way, this is the guy who authorized the spraying of Agent Orange, right? So he gets more hate mail about this than anything else he did. And his response to that criticism was to say, you have no idea how many cheeks I had to kiss to become the chief of naval operations. And this is the first time it was a pleasure, right? So it is a fiction that leaders of organizations aren't political actors. They embody for good or ill the values of the institution. They shape the culture of the institution. The choices they make have consequences for the institution. So the apolitical notion that Huntington argues is the noble calling of the military encourages the military to be dumb about politics, which makes for ineffective military leadership of the organization. It makes for bad military advice to policymakers. But also, Huntington passes off his own conservative politics as a neutral shaping of the organization. Remember that in Soldier and the State, Huntington concludes that democracy and an effective military will ultimately be incompatible. So the natural conclusion of the system he is advocating is for either the collapse of democracy into military leadership of the country or an ineffectual military. And I think 230 years of American military subordination to elected leadership and more or less effective war fighting prove that he's wrong. And the reason he's wrong is because there's actually a better model and we had the great good fortune to have that model at its inception personified by George Washington, who during the Newburgh conspiracy not only calls upon the professionalism of the military, but an often overlooked point about his response to the Newburgh conspiracy is that Washington cedes the point to the mutinous officers that Congress is terrible at its job. But the point is, they don't have to be any good at what they do 
for us to have the professional obligation of subordination to elected officials in this country. That's the point. And what Huntington's model of objective control breeds is a sense on the part of the military that they're different and better than the grubby politicians who we Americans choose to run the country. And so that's why I always make faces when Huntington comes up. I commend to you Lori Friedman's book, Command, which is two or three dozen examples of civil military relations across different countries and across different time spans. And it really underscores the point that only by having the military and political leaders fundamentally understand each other, which only comes with familiarity, can you get not only solid civil military relations, but good war planning. And Corey, just to build on that, I mean, that perception of a military separated entirely from the political enterprise is at odds with every other domain of national power. We would encourage the board of any Fortune 500 company to fire a CEO who said that politics has no role in the performance of their job. We would be concerned of any person who looked at diplomacy as an element of national power and didn't recognize the role of the president in appointing ambassadors in Congress and confirming appointees and in the policy interactions that had happened at multiple lower levels nor would the treatment of them with the utter contempt that Huntington does be something that we would encourage, both in terms of the blowback it would have for the elements of the economy, for the elements of diplomacy, for all of these other components. We wouldn't encourage that, and yet somehow this is held out as an ideal that a general officer should be above the fray and unaware of the political implications. It also absolves politicians of the responsibility of providing firm oversight at a time where we see massive cost overruns, where we don't have a clean audit of the Department of Defense or really a clear pathway to get there, and where we have to think much more strategically about how we're going to counter threats on the horizon like China and others and where the parochialism of military leadership at times is counter to the needs of national security, where we need to be thinking about how do we innovate, how do we fight faster, how do we do things in a different way. And it's very hard for the institutions themselves to drive there. Uh, And you're going to require a political set of interactions and oversight that actually drive us towards where we need to go in terms of grand strategy and things like that. So I think it's counterproductive in two ways. One, from the institution of the military, which why would it be different than other elements of a professional society as Huntington conceives it, right? And then secondly, from the realm of politics itself in which it relieves the politicians themselves of oversight and leads to, for instance, an authorization to use military force that remains in effect today and absolves Congress of the responsibility to rein in specific strategic decisions by the military. Those are great points. Mike, do you have any reaction to that before I move on? Well, I couldn't agree more with Corey's assessment about the utility of Huntington's theories. Unfortunately, it does seem to have a pretty prime place within our professional military education. But in practice, what's actually a more useful concept is the idea of subjective control. When we talk about military politicization, often that's the subject that comes up, even if implicitly we're talking about the socialization of the military as sort of a fusion with the civilian world rather than hermetically sealed. I go back to the comment made before about the difference between a political and nonpartisan. What we should strive to educate are not political officers 
but politically literate officers who can navigate that landscape adroitly and wisely while preserving accepted frameworks of civilian control. And it's not easy, but by accepting at least the challenge up front, we can diagnose the problem better and prescribe better solutions. I really like that distinction, Mike, because I agree with you. We don't want politicians in our military, right? We should prefer the problems of a military clumsy at politics to the problems of a military sleek and effective at politics. But they do need to be literate at it. They need to be smart enough to keep their feet out of wolf traps at a time, as Dan points out, that practically every politician in America has an incentive, a deep, profound self-interest in using the military for political purposes. Dan talked about the risk of right-wing radicalization, but even in a less dangerous part of the spectrum, we're living through an intensively partisan time in American politics and a time in which the military's popularity has been largely sustained, but the popularity of practically every other institution of American political and communal life whether it's churches, politicians, journalists, has fallen through the floorboards. So by contrast, the military is the only trusted institution and politicians will continue to use it for political purposes for as long as that remains the case. So we need military leaders who are literate enough in the dark art of politics to be able to keep the institution out of trouble. One of the questions that Mike's book looks at is the trends in politicization over time. And I'd like to ask, Mike, what have the trends been? Are the norms against partisan activism decreasing among the active and retired military, or are they increasing? And I can't help but note that Corey's comment aligns with one of the central challenges you identify in your book, which is there's a convergence of two trends in the United States right now. There's high confidence in the U.S. military among the public and an increase in polarization within the American public, which may be increasing the struggle for nonpartisanship within America's most favored institution, the military. Well, absolutely. And, you know, a rich body of research has approached this topic, politicization, in many ways, including with a particular focus on the military. They've typically embraced a definition of this idea that focuses on tangible actions often taken by the military that engage in some charged partisan political space. What the book tries to do is envision this concept as something much more comprehensive, uh, that it's not only the set of behaviors that align the military institution with or against the preferences of a specific partisan establishment, but also any behaviors that give the appearance of same. This is a key distinction and one central to the book's findings, that the military can be acutely politicized even without any meaningful action on the military's part. Uh, Though the military itself can and and may engage in actions that politicize the institution, other actors in that space can achieve the same effect. And you outlined some artifacts of the surrounding environment that have created the circumstances for that to be the case, the sort of twin trends of both a warming affect for the military over the last 50 years or so amongst the public. At the same time, you have decreasing affect for each other. And the circumstances that those have created are intensely partisan and intensely tribal political debates. And though I don't necessarily unpack this other piece in the book directly, it is worth noting that there's sort of another matched set of trends that's humming in the background. 
that is less about the environment and more about the catalyst. And that is the nationalization of politics at the same time that national fora for politics have you know, what Lynn Vavrick and John Sides would say have calcified. And what that's done is it's created an increased focus on national political narratives at the same time that the forum for adjudicating them no longer is producing those outcomes. We have an increased congressional gridlock, for instance, and it's causing partisan skirmishes to spill over into secondary and tertiary institutions that were not designed to accommodate them. The sort of first echelon here is seeing policy more or less being decided by executive order, for instance, or through the court system. But the knock-on effects there are expert communities or professional communities are secondary or tertiary fronts in a society-wide partisan battle. So the scientific community, mass media, law enforcement, academia, and the military. And so the trends over time have sort of gone in sequence with these incredibly acute and incredibly social components of polarization, where it's not even about policy differences, but about interpersonal differences between the identities of the respective partisan tribes. And unfortunately, civil military relations scholarship for a long time assumed that the armed forces were somehow immune from those influences because it has been the beneficiary of decades of positive affect from the military. But I think we're starting to see those numbers come down to earth after being maybe artificially high. And this is something the book definitely picks up on for a very long time. And what we would want to have the public do is embrace a clear-eyed understanding of the military, one that actually values military performance objectively and not seeing their value or their utility as part of a partisan constituency. Why has the public warmed to the military over the past few decades? Why has the confidence increased in the military since Vietnam? And also, you know, one of the things you look at in your book, which I think is really interesting, is whether this leads military leaders to actually have a voice to shape policy. I mean, hypothetically, it seems like they could, but you actually, you know, do some empirical research to see whether military leaders can drive public discourse. Kyle, when you ask that question, I mean, I think the question that comes to mind for me like that I would love to hear Mike's perspective on too, is why is that happening in a world in which our military has departed from Iraq in a way that demonstrated a failure of strategy, departed from Afghanistan in a way that showed a failure of strategy, both wars in which I served. And curious as to like how you see that trend happening, I look at the challenges we're having, for instance, today with recruitment and find it hard to divorce from not just the politicization of the military as a as a construct, but frankly, a perception that the military is more aligned with a particular side of the spectrum than youth as a whole think is the direction they'd like to see the country go. It's a very high level and general principle, but it's like there's this set of trends that Kyle's outlined, but it's also happened at a time where you know, Vietnam didn't happen the way we wanted it to, Iraq didn't happen the way we wanted to, Afghanistan didn't happen the way we wanted to. There seems to have been a lack of accountability. It reminds me of my friend who said, why is it that a private who loses a rifle suffer greater consequences than a general who loses a war, right? So that's in the background. And then we're suffering these recruitment issues today in the wake of those things. And so are we just looking at a tale where we would expect the perception of the military to change? So I have some data on that from the surveys Jim Mattis and I commissioned when we were writing Warriors and Citizens in 2015. And the main reasons that the American public loves our military have actually nothing to do with winning wars. They think the generals are dishonest about progress in the wars. You guys are just any other political action committee arguing for money. 
which they think you get a lot of and not aren't quite sure why. But there are two things that make the military such a respected institution in American life. And the first is that it is one of the few remaining conveyor belts into the American middle class. You can get your citizenship that way. You can get your education that way. You can get a mortgage on a house that way. And Americans see that and like that. And the second thing is it genuinely is the non-political nature of the institution, right? The number of soldiers who, when interviewed about the Iraq war, give the veteran and writer Phil Kly's answer, which is, do I agree with the policy? That's radically beside the point. <laughs> and so what we see in the data is that the public would love, this comes through especially in surveys done by Peter Fever, Jim Golby, and Lindsey Cohn. The public would love to drag the military into every culture war and policy dispute the country's got going on because it's validating. It's actually the same reason that far-right groups recruit veterans. It validates the political ideology. But even the proportion of the public that wants the military involved in those conversations respects them less when they do get involved in those conversations. It was kind of a catch-22. Because they're so respected, they have a voice. But when they use that voice, they actually diminish the credibility of the institution. Not when they use that voice. When they use that voice in a partisan way. When the military talks about the things the military knows about, or especially when the military talks about the institution's values, the public loves them for that. Well, I think this is a point well made, especially in the context of when we talk about the impact of the retired military community as part of this landscape of voices in politicization. And there may be a certain extent to which, and what Corey has identified as something that, you know, Jason Dempsey has referred to as the paradox of prestige, that the very thing that gives the currency of that voice credibility is the very thing that you can't violate by using the voice. And that sort of loop can create a common pool problem where individuals can engage in sort of privatized benefits for using the imprimatur of the military institution and political speech, but the damage is public, it's distributed over the entire institution. Taken to its logical conclusion, we're almost talking about sort of Gresham's law for military credibility. Bad military voices drive out good because they're valued equally, because they're both drawing on the same brand. And one of the things the book picks up on through survey experimentation to this effect is exactly what Corey identified, which is when military officers speak either on partisan media networks or as part of campaigns or with a clear brand of a partisan affiliation, not only does the public negatively update their assessments of that individual's expertise and credibility, but negatively updates their understanding of the military as an institution. Uh, and research done by lots of scholars in this field has found that the public really can't tell the difference between active duty service members, retired service members, members in the reserve component. To them, they're really all representatives of the same institution. And so we need to remember that when we talk about what the sources of politicization are, because the book actually thinks of the military community as a broad group of individuals at the elite level and the mass public level that includes those retired individuals, because they are some of the most vocal. And yet the military community has participated actively in our politics since the inception of our republic. And one thing I would take umbrage with is the idea that 
those voices speak only for their personal gain when they leverage their expertise, background, and service in the military as providing credibility, which it does, and yet do so in a way that advances a particular policy. I feel like that's actually the crux of national service in many ways, is to take what you know, how you know it, and the reason that your voice is credible and apply it in the arena in ways that will actually drive policy at the national, the state, the local level, globally, wherever it is, towards ends that serve the American people. And so I think it's a paradox that you've highlighted, but one that is at the heart of the functioning of our republic since the days of Washington. And if you look at the ranks of Congress, one could argue, actually, that there's actually a difference today, which is the movement away from national service into an all-volunteer force has separated that military from the public at large in ways that create that distinction and make it harder. And so, you know, when, when I think about things like creating a culture of national service and things like that, that actually would offer pathways besides telling general officers, hey, look, you shouldn't go on Fox or MSNBC to talk about policy, retired generals or reservists or whatever. I actually think that the root cause of the problem may be much more around the lack of collective national service, much more than it is around people using their voices in ways that they've used it throughout American history. But I think it's also true that the other term for veterans is citizens. Like, of course they have the right to say and do whatever they want. But it is also true that many of them believe that their military service uniquely qualifies them to be credible voices on issues beyond what they did in their military service. And that is unquestionably bad for the public's sense of trust in its military. But doesn't military service and the way we conceive of military service offer a venue in which one offers credibility, not terms of just their knowledge domain, but of their willingness to work with others, operate as part of a team, live by those values as the military that the military has that confer unique credibility. And so I think saying, hey, somebody coming on and speaking about a policy issue that is outside of their realm in the military, you may or may not regard them as credible and yet appealing to those ideals that the American public rightfully sees as something positive, I think is actually part of an act of being a credible public servant as well. There's more than just what's your policy domain when you have that conversation about why is the person who's offering a political solution, a policy solution, a reason I should vote for somebody or against somebody. Part of the credibility they bring to that conversation is their own history of service and willingness to subscribe to ideals that Americans more broadly hold dear. So I think there's the policy component of it, but I actually think there's a credibility that goes beyond the specific policy on which they can comment. It's true, but veterans are not the only Americans who have made those choices, school teachers, firefighters. And yet you see veterans activism on occasion claiming unique control or validation of those things. And that too creates distance in civil military issues. For example, in the surveys for warriors and citizens, a disproportionate proportion of respondents have no opinion on military things because they expect military voices and veterans' voices to answer those. And there is social opprobrium to having a view different than veterans or military people do. So it can also be very distancing. 
in civil-military relations. I mostly agree with you, though, Dan. I think we mostly agree with each other. I would say it's true. I also, as a delegate, I mean, I was just at the kickoff campaign for a firefighter. I sit next to a teacher who teaches American politics in high school and my seatmate in the General Assembly in Virginia. And all of those people lean into their biographies, right? When they write you know, a nurse who's running right now. So all of those people lean into their biographies and the American public, as they make decisions on who to elect, decides what level of credibility they want to give them in those biographies. And so I'm not disputing that it has an impact on civil military relations. I think what I'm saying is it's baked into the pie as far as how we think about firefighters, teachers, business people. Every institution in America is afflicted by this same challenge. And the military has been very fortunate to be uniquely positioned above the fray in many ways. And and some of the conversations we're having are about, okay, as these really challenging issues in American society spill over everywhere, what is the unique role of the military, particularly when those things are inherently threatening to the military? I mean, that's why I started talking about the impact of the extreme right in the military, because I actually think it's a threat everywhere, but it's particularly unique threat in the military and police, for instance. And that's where that spillover, I think, is a bigger challenge than it is elsewhere. I think we may be talking about a couple different things here. One is active duty or veterans speaking out in essentially partisan ways, for example, endorsing a candidate at a political convention or lending voice to public discourse on a particular policy challenge. But, you know, another angle that Mike addresses in his book is the idea that the prestige of the military or the perceived prestige of the military and the general public actually prevents accountability of military performance, which we touched on before. And in fact, one of the academic studies that Mike references, not necessarily endorses, but references, is that some argue that elected officials who are veterans actually are good for oversight of the military because they can kind of credibly speak on the performance of the military to senior military leaders. I'd be curious to explore this other angle of this and what your research has found about the impact of the prestige of the military as perceived today on accountability in civil military relations. So you mentioned before the trend since the end of the Vietnam War of increasing affect for the military over time, but that we really don't have a firm theory for why that's the case. It's clearly not tied to battlefield successes because the worst years of the global war on terror didn't really elicit decisive victories. It doesn't seem to be tied to necessarily the absence of scandal or professional issues. So there have been a lot of theories about why this is the case, but one of the things that the data now is starting to reveal is that that high affect for the military may have been built on a soft foundation. The sort of gold standard, I think, in data for measuring confidence in institutions over time is the Gallup Annual Confidence in Institutions data set they field every June. And for the first time since 2000, since before 9-11, aggregate top two block confidence in the military was at 64%. That's the lowest it's been in a quarter century. And the reason why is because the last two years have seen a 20 percentage point dip in confidence from self-identified Republicans who were sort of keeping the aggregate levels very high over time, despite professional scandals, despite strategic quagmire and military interventions. Those numbers coming back down to earth is putting the military into a sharper partisan spotlight now where it's being assessed more on what its activities are and not necessarily because of a cultural affinity to the military itself. So you brought up the question about prestige and oversight. Well, you referenced before the the piece on politicization by Andrew Exum from years ago, where he was making the case that there should be more veterans in Congress because they can credibly sit on congressional panels and scrutinize military activity 
directly because they come from a position where that is more credible. And my answer to that would be, that is the mandate of all civilian leadership who sit on congressional panels. You don't need to have military credentials to conduct oversight of the military. In fact, that's part of the job. You know, this was something often folks would point to the late Senator McCain as saying, you know, he was uniquely able to take generals and admirals to task over the performance of the wartime military because of his military credentialing. But in a perfect system, responsible and engaged oversight would be the default state for, you know, civilians in this space. And we should consider that to be the aspirational vision for evaluating the military based on its actual performance in a objective and credible way. We should want trust in the military military not to be low. Let's be clear. We shouldn't want trust in the military to be low. We should want it to be accurate. And we have lots of data that shows us over the last two decades that there really hasn't been the case. And it's because individuals draw an increasing share of their impressions of the military from third parties. Because if you are not a veteran yourself and you do not live or have a family member who is a veteran, you're taking a lot of cues about your impressions of the institution from third-party voices. And that can include partisan media outlets who don't necessarily display the institution in the best light or the most accurate light. And so we're coming to a crossroads now where the military is increasingly part of these discussions about politicization because it's scrutinized from both sides of the political spectrum for the first time in quite some time. Really quickly, a reaction to the Andrew Exum piece and the idea of expertise. I agree with you. Like, I'll start with, I agree with you that every member of Congress, particularly those who sit on the relevant committees, ought to be providing effective oversight of the military, given its role in national security, given its source, given its role as being the largest recipient of U.S. taxpayer dollars. There's an inherent responsibility to do that. Yet, I'd say in my own role, I sit in the House Agricultural Committee in Virginia. I'm not a farmer. I provide oversight and play an important policymaking role there. But I also talk to the farmers on the committee about the impact that the decisions we're going to be making have on what they do. And so I, I think you can accept on the one hand that everybody should have a role, and yet it is uniquely important that we have many with military service in Congress so that they can provide relevant expertise to answer the question, what does this mean? Or when the general said this, like, this is what I heard. Does that make sense? So I, I think you actually need that expertise and we should encourage that expertise. And I think saying there's a need for civilian oversight is right. And yet you can't at the same time diminish the importance and the role of having those who've actually worn the uniform serve in those positions. And we would be in a much worse place if we didn't have folks like Mike Gallagher on the Republican side or Elaine Loria, who was until recently serving as Democrat in Congress, Abigail Spamberger. These are folks on both sides of the aisle who provided real expertise and thoughtfulness around everything from you know, the threat emanating from Russia to the role of China to how many ships we should have in the Navy, right? Like, I just don't want to diminish those, those voices. And so I think it's just really important that we can both hold that, yes, everybody should provide oversight, but on the other hand, that we need those, those specific. Yeah, there is actual expertise that can be added. And I very much like, Dan, that you focused on the expertise, not on the point of, you know, only the military knows enough to grill the military. Because the flip side of that coin is very often people who have experience will, you know, make excuses for failures. So it can cut both ways. If you focus on, you know, the oversight function, as opposed to the expertise that helps everybody with oversight. I think that's right. The other piece I just wanted to share, and it's a challenge, is that, I mean, you mentioned the decrease in the support for Republicans in the military. And yet, in many ways, this is something that's coming from outside the military in a way that the military has a limited ability to influence. And so it's just something to think about, which is this is 
in many ways, directly the result, not of military performance, but on the attacks and right-wing media on things that we probably believe increase military effectiveness and retention and recruitment, such as ensuring that regardless of your race or your sex, that you are able to serve in a meaningful capacity in the military, which is critical for recruitment, critical for retention, critical for the efficacy of the force. And yet those are the very things that when I open the Wall Street Journal, I see on the attack pages of their op-ed page, the very things that I see in Fox News highlighted. And so again, I think that you know the challenge there is, and it's not that the military that has to change, it's actually the norms on the right uh, that believe that these critical elements of military efficacy are political fodder in a way that they once were. And I think that's a big challenge. So I will actually dispute that because it is also coming from within the military, right? Think about the decision about women serving in combat units and the number of military folks who argued this is going to destroy unit cohesion or General Milley, eager to show off his Princeton education, answering a question about critical race theory that nobody asked him, which then made it fair game for everybody in the military to have to have an informed opinion on that subject, and for the American people and the American Congress to continue drawing them in to a subject almost nobody actually knows anything about, And second of all, creates the public perception of the military as a political actor in a political dispute going on in the country that the military actually wants no part of, right? They mostly just want to be left out of the nonsense that amuses us in high politics. Mike, your book takes a look at partisan media influence perceptions of the military quite a bit. Can you discuss a little bit how partisan media influences perceptions of the military? Well, I've mentioned it at points throughout the discussion so far, but you know it's worth noting that, you know, as I said, we have lots of data that show that decades of high confidence in the military may actually be on a foundation of sand. And there's two key empirical findings in the book that reflect this. Using some survey experimentation and some observational data, it becomes clear that the military has enjoyed decades of relatively favorable coverage from conservative media sources, even during times of military quagmire or scandal. And as a result, their viewers were highly resistant to negative information about the institution. This, I think, is responsible for keeping those aggregate numbers of confidence in the military quite high. But as both Corey and Dan noted on the margins, is that the sort of turn in both military activity and reporting on said military activity tracks very closely with the last two years of lower confidence or trust in the institution from self-identified Republicans. And this is something that the book picks up sort of the first couple pebbles in this landslide. Robert Ralston and Ron Krebs talk about this in a 2021 foreign affairs piece about how a change in conservative media reporting in a more adversarial way with the military has been incredibly influential in shaping how their viewers draw impressions about the military as an institution and how credible it is. The book looks at the Iraq war, military reporting during the Iraq war, during the Afghanistan conflict, reporting on military scandals such as Abu Ghraib, Haditha, the sexual assault scandal, and finds really over the course of that period of time that there was a negative updating from Democrats and independents on confidence in the military institution, but that never really reached the Republican constituency, which tends to historically have looked at the military as a fellow traveler, at least ideologically, and that that no longer may be the case moving forward. 
Pew Research does very good landscape kind of demography on how individuals consume media. Their most recent report on this has found that self-identified Republicans tend to consume media from a very small number of highly influential sources, as opposed to a lot of other Americans who maybe consume a wider variety of news sources as part of their media diet. And why this is important is it makes those individual sources incredibly influential in shaping public opinion about the military. And so when you have a kind of a hard turn in how the military is portrayed in public circles, even amongst just a few outlets, those outlets can be incredibly influential. And so this kind of lends itself to its own solution, I think, which is that the military as an institution within accepted frameworks of civilian control should do a better job of telling its own story rather than relying on having that story told for them by entities that may not have its best interest at heart. This is through their marketing, through their public affairs, even through its activities that signal to the public what its values are, what its organizational principles are. I think a great example of this is the base renaming commission, of which you know Corey was a central player which is that is a great way to signal to the public exactly what the institution values, which is the contributions of Americans whose you know, principal service to the country came in a lot of different forms and not, for instance, former officers from the Confederacy whose principal contribution was the destruction of the Republic and not service to it. <laughs> this part can't be said, and that should be pretty uncontroversial. But the fact that that discourse has also become polarized means that you have an instance in which, and Dan mentioned this point before, the ground moves beneath the feet of military leaders and service members, which is by engaging in what may be objectively perceived to be unoffensive behavior, you actually now are engaging in activity that redounds to the benefit of one party over another. And this is where something that I don't get into in the book, and I very much encourage future scholarship to look at is, it would suggest that politicization is not created equal across cases, that there is a continuum of normative egregiousness from the very mild to the more acutely problematic, and that we should factor that in to politicization cases in the future. Because even if it fits my book's definition of a politicizing act, it may not necessarily be normatively problematic compared to other acts of politicization. And that is an important part of the conversation that I did not get to in the course of writing that book, but that somebody else definitely should. Corey, Michael, I, that leads me to a question, which is just, as you think about this point you made earlier about oversight, and you think about the shifting views of the far right on, or not just the far right, but some elements of the right, including the far right on the military itself, does that conversely have a positive role in driving more oversight and more thoughtfulness about the military as a whole? If you have members of Congress who in the past would have been more deferential and for reasons that probably I personally deeply disagree with are less deferential in terms of providing oversight. And does oversight in these areas that are not problematic lead to oversight in areas that are actually really important? Like, is this actually a positive, the pathway it's going on is not a good pathway, right? The reasons we're getting there, I don't think we should be trying to revisit the decision to have women serve in combat roles. I think that was long overdue. But I think actually, is there something to be said for not holding the militaries up, that these are positive trends and the decrease in the public's view of the military as a whole? It's such an interesting point, Dan. And I think you may be onto something because my biggest worry for civil military relations in the United States is apathy. It's the public neither knowing nor caring about casualties in combat, about an AUMF that's been expanded beyond all reasonable bounds. So the opting out by Americans, including Americans in elective office, of knowing and caring about 
wars we're fighting, people we're recruiting, the terms on which we create inclusion in our military, the representation of Americans in service, like all of those things, I think you may be right. We're better off arguing about them than we are leaving them to the professionals because that not only decreases oversight, it decreases engagement. And what I notice about in the data on civil military relations is that sheer familiarity is really important. And as you point out, Dan has evaporated 50 years into an all-volunteer force when we have made a policy choice that we need only a small military relative to the size of our population. I'm reminded of one of the comments from our last episode, which included Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, where he said, the distinction between the United States military and, say, the Russian military is that we're a learning organization and we're self-critical in nature. And so I think the discussion on civilian oversight is just one component of being a learning organization. I'm acutely aware that we are running short on time, and so I'd like to pivot to our kind of final question. Mike already started to talk about implications for the military on how to address potential challenges of politicization. Starting with Dan, what advice for military officers from the tactical to senior levels or to civilian leaders working with the military do you have given the conversation today? And what measures can we take as a nation to address key civil military concerns? Kyle, I think for me, I'll start off with, and I think for all of us on this today, I mean, serving in the military has been a formative experience for myself, of which I'm proud and I'm sure for those who are listening, that's the way and for the rest of their lives, right? This idea of being a veteran and, and being part of a community is important. And I think for me, and I'd encourage for, for those who are thinking about it, you know, thinking about it, of that as an experience within the experience of being a citizen is really important as well, that it doesn't separate you from the American politic, the body politic, but actually makes you a critical component of it and yet forms an integrated part of a whole, right? I find sometimes that those who've served look down on expertise or capability or what others have done. And as Corey was pointing out, there's lots of ways in which people serve, whether it's through community organizations, through teaching as my wife does in our public schools, whether it's through serving in the diplomatic corps or the intelligence community. Those are all critical components of the body politic, and we are but one, and yet we're not separate from it. We are distinct and unique and not separate from it, and therefore have unique responsibilities that we continue to carry with us, that we should be worried about those who would celebrate the military without seeking to understand it, that we should provide advice and guidance where we can, that we should embrace our role as citizens as well by participating in our politics and being mindful as well that politics pervades everything we do, whether we want it to or not. And so as a senior military leader, you have a responsibility to make sure that to the earlier point by Mike, we are being political but not partisan. And then for those of us who leave into offices or roles that find ourselves being partisan, inherently partisan, that we think through the implications of making sure that we enable the military to be political but not partisan at the same time. Well, this is a complicated subject and the answers are not always manifestly clear. And this can mean having to have uncomfortable but terribly important conversations about the nature of the profession ones that serve the ultimate enterprise of democracy. The source of many of the likely solutions, as Dan noted before, is not solely the province of the military either. Uh, the voting public should examine the military with a clear eye. That's one based on accurate assessment of military performance and not partisan utility. 
partisan political leaders should actively endeavor to keep the military out of partisan contexts, whether it's engaging in constructive oversight from the halls of Congress, to simply ensuring that national political narratives never rise to the level of sanctioning political violence. These steps on their own would do a great deal to normalize civil-military relations generally. But there is, of course, much the military can do as well. One approach I brought up already, which is engaging the public directly through its public relations and its marketing and telling the institution's story and its core values rather than having that story told for them. But I would also say that military service members from the individual all the way up to senior leadership should conceive of the nonpartisan norm as one that exists in absolute terms. There's a tendency in military professional education that can result in the belief that nonpartisan means evenly spaced from both parties. But this is not the case. And in fact, such thinking might actually force the military to shift off of dearly held organizational values in order to maintain it. So military leaders and their civilian superiors should embrace a principled understanding of the nonpartisan norm that preserves both effectiveness and professionalism. You know, I should have started this answer by saying it's important to note that this is one of those areas that's not just about the army and not even really just about the military, but should be generally interesting to national security professionals broadly. And this is for a simple but obvious reason. You know, I bored a lot of the audience today with a lot of political science, so it seems only fair to bore them a little bit with some history. But early in public life, Lincoln once famously spoke about how the chief national security challenge the U.S. would always face was not necessarily invading armies from abroad, but the defense and preservation of its political institutions. He said, as a nation of freemen, we must live through all time or die by suicide. And in this sense, there is no meaningful conversation about national security that does not begin and end with this idea, the preservation of institutions, not just in form but in function, that they represent a free and democratic society. What we've talked about today and what the book tries to address is how we as a society believe the military best fits into such a system through preserving a nonpartisan force. So I would say if you're a senior military leader or a civilian defense official and you don't have a member of your staff or a strategist on your team thinking about this problem set, my advice would be to get one. So I have two practical suggestions for military folks. And the first is to remember the advice of the great criminal defense attorney, Clarence Darrow, that no man was ever convicted based on testimony he did not give. You do not have to have an opinion on every subject in the country. And when Jim Mattis was defense secretary, he actually modeled this nicely He was asked whether he supported players in the National Football League kneeling during the national anthem. And his response was a weary look and the comment that he had a really busy, demanding job and he really didn't have time to be informed on that subject. It is okay not to answer every question you are asked by anybody in political life. The second thing, though, is that there are some answers you have to give, and those are answers about the values of the institution. You don't have to accept the terms of a challenge like, is the military woke? And in fact, as your barracks lawyer, I would advise, don't accept the framing and don't use the terminology of people who are trying to politicize you. But If you say nothing when the values of the institution are challenged, you are allowing that shift that Mike just talked about and defending who our military is as representative of all of the country, of inclusive 
of anybody, any American citizen or aspiring American citizen who is willing to take the oath to the Constitution and serve it in our military and challenge those who would try and put a political cast on the military to give us a better answer about how to create cohesion in this diverse military you have created for us. Tell us how to do that if you don't like the way we're doing it now, because that puts responsibility for a better answer than the military has, which is the plodding earnestness that the American public so loves our military for. Challenge them. If you got a better way for us to do this, we'd love to hear it. Dan Helmer, Mike Robinson, and Corey Shockey, thank you for joining the Social Science of War podcast. This was an exceptionally interesting conversation on civil-military relations. It was fun, my friends. Thank you. Thanks, Kyle. Thank you for listening to Season 1, Episode 10 of the Social Science of War podcast, brought to you by the Social Sciences Department at West Point. This is the last episode of Season 1 of the Social Science of War. If this was your first episode of the podcast, we encourage you to go back to Episode 1 and listen to the entire season. If you enjoyed all of Season 1 and are anxious for additional professional development resources, check out the other Modern War Institute podcast to include the Irregular Warfare podcast, which I co-founded, the Modern War Institute podcast, the Urban Warfare podcast, or The Spear. If you liked today's episode, please like and leave a positive comment on your favorite podcast platform and share the social science of war with other scholars and army professionals. This really makes a big difference by helping drive others with similar interests to the conversation. And one last note, what you heard today were the views of the participants and do not represent those of West Point, the Army, or any agency of the U.S. government. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.